things about the Bible is you know a lot from the Scripture about the church in Ephesus. You have Acts 18, you have Acts 19, you have Acts 20. Then you have 1 and 2 Timothy, where Timothy's ministry is taking place in Ephesus. Then you have our Lord Jesus, one of the largest cities in the ancient world. Only Rome and then Alexandria would have been larger. It is said to have had the largest marketplace in the Greek-speaking world, and it's a place bustling with activity. Most scholars think there was about 200 to 250,000 people living in Ephesus when Paul the Apostle visited there. It was also home to the Temple of Diana, which is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That You've probably seen pictures of Athens, and above Athens there's that building with pillars, the, the Parthenon. The Temple of Diana in Ephesus was four times larger than that building. So it's one of the, the, the centers of, of pagan worship in the ancient world. And that's why we read about the gospel flourishing in Acts chapter 19. I want to look at this this morning under the, the context of two headings, which I think characterize the book of Acts. There are challenges to the word of God and the gospel, but then we also learn about the character of Christianity, the character of what it means to be a Christian. Challenges and character. Acts 19, beginning in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That if you read in chapter 18 of Acts, you'll see that chapter 18, Paul begins in Corinth. And in Corinth, Paul meets... Aquila and Priscilla, and he meets them because evidently they have the same trade as Paul the Apostle, so he gets to know them. Evidently, Aquila and Priscilla become believers. Maybe they already were disciples, we're not sure, but eventually they accompany Paul, and when Paul leaves Corinth, he goes to Ephesus in Acts chapter 18. It's just a brief mention of this stop-off in Ephesus, and he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there, and then Paul moves on. Acts chapter 19, Paul comes back to Ephesus. And what we find is there are already believers there. There are already disciples there. There are certainly already Jews there. Just a few years before this was written, before Acts 19, actually not a few years, probably months, if you read at the beginning of Acts chapter 18, you'll see that that the, the Roman emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Jerusalem, and some of them, no doubt, went to this large, major, well-known city with established trade of Ephesus. So you find people... In Ephesus, who are believers in Jesus, you find Jews there. You find a Jewish synagogue there. When Paul returns to Ephesus, he goes apparently first to the Jewish synagogue and begins reasoning with them from the scriptures. And what you find here is what you see all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. There is opposition from the Jews. And that's the first challenge we see in the passage. That as the gospel is spreading, the word of of God is spreading, there are challenges, and in this case, there's Jewish opposition. The synagogue, this assembly of Jews where they would come together and read the word of God, hear from the word of God, and they would pray. Notice, they, they come to the synagogue, Paul goes there, because he would have had the credentials of a Jewish Pharisee, he's allowed to speak, and notice what he does in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 8, for three months, spoke boldly. This is what Paul does. He, he, with conviction and power, proclaims the truth of Jesus. He's reasoning and persuading them. 
Reasoning is the Greek word dialegami, from which we get our word dialogue. So not all that Paul does is proclamation of the gospel. No, he's also talking with them. He's dialoguing with them about Jesus Christ and about the Word of God and how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He's dialoguing. Notice he's also persuading that he's trying to convince them of this truth. And this is why, as Christians, we want to be as persuasive as we can. Obviously, with our life and the way we handle the Word of God and point people to Jesus. That's what Paul's doing. And he's persuading them, notice, about the kingdom of God. That God has a kingdom. He has a rule. And the way one enters into the kingdom of God is through the king, God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's basic, simple message. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, that's the way in which one enters the kingdom of God. And he begins telling this to Jews. The Jews are a natural place to begin because they had the Old Testament scriptures. They knew what God had already said. And so Paul the Apostle, himself being a Jew, begins there. But notice what happens. And notice how there's opposition and resistance that comes in verse 9. When some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. Friends, this is going to be the normal, the norm. They're speaking evil of the Christian gospel. The way there is just the way, a, a, a title for the Christian life or the Christian faith. It's the way. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. These Jews were speaking evil of the, the way. Notice what Paul does. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. There's a time in which he's, he's done casting his pearls before swine. And he takes the disciples with him. And notice what Paul the apostle does, which is consistent with his methodology all through the book of Acts. He's reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So Paul is fine setting up shop essentially in this pagan lecture hall so he can teach the Bible. Verse 10, look at this summary statement. So the book of Acts doesn't give us all the details. It, it's a history that speaks oftentimes in form of summary. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. There's religious Jewish opposition and challenge to the gospel. One of the things you find happening in that day and time, and in the book of Acts particularly, is that this is a time of transition for the people of God. You have in the Old Testament, or living under the Old Covenant, you have Jews, descendants of Abraham, recognized as the people of God. The book of Acts is this transition from the Old Covenant. The, the book of Acts chronicles this transition from the Old Covenant, living under the law as a Jew, to now the New Covenant through Jesus Christ. That previously, the people of God were recognized as those who had faith in the God of Abraham, these descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel, and those within that nation that had faith in God, like Abraham had, those were the people of God. Well, now, with the coming of Jesus and the gospel, one of the changes that's taken place, which, by the way, the Old Testament looks forward to, is the fact that now, whoever calls in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. That the people of God now are the church. Those who believe in Jesus Christ. This is a major transition for the Jews. And this, this causes what becomes the main point of controversy between Christians and Jews all through the Bible. You can't read the book of Romans and not understand this controversy. Because essentially the Jews viewed themselves ethnically, we're the people of God, and now you're saying these Gentiles, whoever believes in Jesus, supposedly God's son, now they're the people of God. It's a major change. 
So you find many Jews oppose this message. The book of Ephesians is going to specifically deal with this issue in chapters 2 and 3. So you've got to understand some of this background of this, this transition and also this tension. There's a lot of tension between the Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Look at Ephesians 2.11. Look what it says. Ephesians 2.11 through 16. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, that's the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope in and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both, notice the both there is Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Friends, any understanding or, or view that would see the Jewish people just because they're ethnically Jews, they don't need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ is a terrible error. Everyone must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Just because someone is a physical descendant of, of Abraham does not mean that they're saved. It's an error. So why Jesus came and died. And now the good news of the gospel is whoever believes, and it's through Christ, and it's in Christ, that all things are made new. That's the challenge. We're going to find that in the book of Ephesians. If you want to read Ephesians 2 and 3, you'll find that prevalent in those chapters. Now let's look at what characterized Paul's Christian witness in the Christianity in, in Ephesus. Notice there at the end of verse 10, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So what is Paul teaching? What is he reasoning with? He's reasoning with the word of God. And notice the word of God has such a prolific effect. Luke uses the summary statement, it's like everybody heard it, which is hyperbole, meaning a lot of people heard. In Asia, the word of God from Ephesus. And notice it's both Jews and Greeks. There's a propagation of the Word of God. In fact, if you study the book of Acts, I believe this is one of the main themes of that book. How the gospel and the Word of God is going forth, how it's spreading. It's going to the ends of the earth. That the name of Jesus is being proclaimed and known in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. That's the theme verse of the book. And here you find it happening at the ends of the earth. All the nations hearing the gospel, the church is propagating the word of God. This week when I was studying uh, ancient history, it was really cool, a great thing to study. Um, one author that I came upon said that the early Christians, about early Christians, we mean first, second century Christians, they were known as, in the ancient world, a bookish people. A bookish people. Why? Because they were basing what they believed and how they lived on what was written. But at the center of how Christians would live and what they would proclaim and what they would say was the Word of God. Just like God's people in the Old Testament were always intended to be followers of the Word of God. In fact, if you look at ancient history and archaeology, do you know what the main artifact and the main artifacts from early Christianity are? Manuscripts. That's our main artifact. It's not statues. 
It's not crucifixes. It's manuscripts. And it's an astounding amount of manuscripts that shows the value God's people, the church, Christians, placed on the written word of God. It's part of how you got your Bible that you have before you today. Because early Christians so valued the word of God and recognized it as inspired by the Lord. Well, there's a characterization of God's word. There's also a challenge of religious syncretism. Religious syncretism, and that's a big word. But you know what, what it means to synchronize two things. To synchronize two things are to bring two things together. Sometimes two opposite things. You're trying to sync them up. Synchronized swimmers swim together in the same way at the same time. And what you have really through all the Old Testament and what you have the Jews doing here in Acts 19 is they're synchronizing or attempting to synchronize the truth of the word of God with pagan practices in the world. Look at it in in beginning of verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. One of the things you find in the book of Acts is you find the, the apostles imbued with the power of God in a way that is not the norm for every Christian. Notice the word in verse 11. Look at how Luke, the historian, describes this. God was doing extraordinary miracles. This is not the norm. And notice it's through the hands of Paul. If you'll read Acts carefully, you'll see the unusual works of God in Acts are through the apostles. This time through Paul. This is unusual. This is an, an extraordinary display of God's power. And look what happens. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. There's syncretism here. Let me explain what I mean. You read the Old Testament, what do you read about exorcisms? What do you read about exorcisms in the Old Testament? What do you read about Jewish exorcists? You don't read about that in the Old Testament. So where does that idea come from? This idea of powerfully trying to expel an evil spirit. It came from pagan culture. It came from magic that we're about to talk about in just a minute. But essentially these exorcists thought that by using some ritual or some word, they could invoke spiritual power and command an evil spirit. It's the only, this is one of the things that makes Jesus power and glory so manifest and unique is that he can do that and other people can't. Look at this man. Even the evil spirits submit to him. But there is a recognition and understanding evil spirits are real and they are powerful. And what are we going to do about them? Well, there's syncretism here in what the Jews were doing is they were synchronizing the ancient views of magic with their Judaism. They see the power of God operative through Paul And they want to see what spiritual power they can harness simply by using the name of Jesus. And it doesn't turn out well for them. One of the little lessons you learn here is don't mess with evil spirits. There's there's curiosity about these things. They're real. Don't mess with demons. Don't mess with evil spirits. Very clear in Scripture to stay away from that. What you see here is 
the Jews attempt this exorcism. And, 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 and quite frankly, you know, exorcism has become more popular in our society today because of the movie Exorcist. I mean, why do people know about this practice? Because it was popularized by a movie. And friends, frankly, that's where most of that needs to stay. It's fiction. To think that you can have power over some spirit because of some word you say or some ritual you do is fiction. It's not biblical. That's magic. Trying to some, use some word or some ritual to have power over evil. Well, it didn't turn out well for them. Rather, if you want to understand how Christians interact with evil spirits and evil powers, which we do, read Ephesians 6. Where you find the paradigm in Ephesians 6 that, that, that we do struggle against the realities of evil powers, but you know how we do it? We do it through the normal realities of the Christian life, like truth, righteousness, the gospel, salvation, prayer, the word of God. Not some bizarre incantation, which is nothing less than medieval magic and fiction. Syncretism. Religious syncretism. But look at the next part here. Look at how the Christianity is characterized by repentance and new life in Christ. Verse 18. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 15,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Notice the contrast here between these Jewish exorcists and again their exercise of magic and these believers. What do the believers do? Look at what they're doing. They're confessing. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That's what believers confess Jesus as Lord. It's one of the, the things that characterizes our life and faith. We confess Jesus as Lord. And notice what else they're doing. They're divulging their practices. They're burning their books of pagan magic. There's a, there's a visible, tangible, powerful change. There's earnestness. In fact, such earnestness, which is what, the way the Scripture describes Christian repentance, there's such earnestness that they take something that's very valuable to them and they burn it. Why does Luke include the value of these books? Well, because it's worth about 140 years of wages, that's why. What is it, 50,000 pieces of silver? In that day and time, it's about 140 years of wages. Point being, these were expensive, valuable books, but because they contradicted their new life in Christ, they burned them. They didn't want anything to do with that anymore. They turned their back on it. That's repentance. Turning our minds away from sin and to Jesus Christ. Divulging their prizes. There's tangible, visible change. And, and rather than repenting, again, there's now a lot of syncretizing. I saw it this week. I can't help but mention it. It's just so clear. What, what, what many Christians are attempting to do, and sadly what many churches are, are attempting to do, is they're trying to synchronize biblical teaching, the gospel, with worldly practice. But essentially what you have is this, this practice of people wanting Jesus or claiming to want Jesus, but then also wanting their sin. And it was in the headlines this week. I don't know if you saw it. Here's the headline. The Bachelorette star defends premarital sex in latest episode because Jesus loves me. That's the headline from this week. I've not watched The Bachelorette. Vaguely know what it's about. 
But here you have a bachelorette who claims to be a Christian. And publicly defending premarital sex, invoking the love of Jesus as a defense. That's syncretizing. That's taking part of the truth that Jesus does love me, and then trying to justify what is clearly sinful and aberrant and wrong. Incidentally, well, not incidentally, I've got to edit the sermon a bit. There was, a, there was evidently another character on the show uh, and who, was, who also claimed to be a Christian, and he was a, 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 a male character, and he said, uh, essentially he spoke to this girl and said, what about the scripture that says the marriage bed should be undefiled? And then he said, I'm saving myself for marriage because that's the kind of husband I want to be when I get married. And, and do you know what the show said about that? They, they labeled him, quote, as having toxic masculinity. Well, that's what the world is going to say about you if you practice the Christian ethics that are ultimately good for you. Here's what the bachelorette went on to say in, in light of this division. Quote, Regardless of anything I've done, well, people may think, oh, that deserves a scarlet letter. That's not how it works. I can do whatever because Jesus loves me. I can do whatever. It's a misunderstanding of repentance. Turning away from sin to Jesus Christ. And it's, it's commonplace now in our day and time. Well, you know what you, got, what you can do? You can take the book of Ephesians and address such matters. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Have no part, have no fellowship with the, fruit, with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. That's the Christian's perspective on what the Bible labels as wickedness. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. In fact, I'm going to expose it as wrong. And you know what? Ephesians 4 goes on to teach, when you expose it as wrong, that's when God brings light and can bring salvation. So rather than syncretizing, we need to proclaim the truth. Because Christianity is characterized by new life and repentance. Finally, one, one last example. This is one of my favorite examples of the gospel going forward in the, the book of Acts. Look at verse 23. There's a little interlude there where Paul sends a few of his friends along. Look at 19.23. This is amazing. And here you see the power of the gospel at work. Acts 19.23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger that not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Do you see the world and the perspectives of the world and the practices of the world are challenged by the gospel? When you have people being changed and repenting and turning from sin, it affects the world? This is why if you look at the, 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 the revivals of John Wesley and George Whitfield, where hundreds of people were being born again and believing the gospel, allegedly. 
Not only did people confess to be Christians, but they quit going to bars in such that some towns, every bar closed down because they recognized drunkenness as sin. It's the power of the gospel, and you see it here in Acts. That as the gospel is going forth, the truth of there being one God and his Son is the Lord Jesus Christ, that they're not idolaters anymore. Look what happens in verse 28. This is, this is what I love. This is amazing. When they heard this, they were all enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See, people in the world are passionate about their idolatry. So that the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd... The disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, these are probably these are these are rulers in Ephesus, who were friends of his, sent to him and urged him not to venture into the theater. Now think of this picture. Here's a picture of boldness with the gospel that the world needs. How does the how does the gospel and the word of God change the world? With examples like this. Here's the the Apostle Paul. What's just happened is because of a few people being ringleaders because they're losing money and they want to support their false god, they get a lot of people mad and they get them chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's like a riot. They go to the, temple, they go to the theater of Ephesus, which, which, by the way, you can still visit today in Ephesus. It seats about 25,000 people. It's a massive amphitheater. And they're in there, and what do they do? They've drugged two Christians, Paul's friends, they've drugged them into the amphitheater. And they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul, here's this crowd of hundreds of people chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul's like, I want to go in there. I want to go proclaim the gospel there. I want to tell them about Jesus Christ. I want to reason with them from the scriptures. And the disciples say, no, you're not going in there. It's good to have people around you uh, to, to restrain you sometimes. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What a scene. Two hours chanting about Artemis is great. They're passionate about Artemis. And what happens? The town clerk comes in, quiets him down, and says, deal with this with the courts. But you see the challenge here. The challenge here is opposition from the world. The challenge here is religious pluralism. The belief in other gods. And yes, in America, one of the amazing things about the time in which we live and the place in which we live is we're not really challenged with other gods, but America does have other gods. And their ideologies, their belief systems. And that atheism is a religion. It is a system of belief. Materialism is a religion. It is a system of belief that includes worship and usually praise. And these ideologies infect our world. And friends, the gospel challenges all of those things. Paul goes from Corinth to Ephesus. While he's in Ephesus, he writes to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 16.9. He says to the Corinthian church, a wide door for effective ministry is open to me in Ephesus, and there are many adversaries. Do you understand that to be a Christian means opposition and adversity and having adversaries? If you live out the gospel, if you proclaim the gospel, you will have adversaries. The world will not put up with that. And you see it here. And we see it today. Well, in closing, 
Let's talk for just a few minutes about the impact of God's word today. See the impact it had in Ephesus, and it's a, it's a dramatic example of the word of God going forth and prevailing and expanding and being challenged. What about today? Well, there's challenges as well today, and many of them are the same. We need to challenge the notions of the world, the belief and behavior of the world. We need to challenge cultural norms and long-established traditions. The, the, the Ephesians are passionate about the worship of Artemis. We need to challenge identity. Right? For the early Christians, it was Christ or Caesar. Well, guess what? Their citizenship was in heaven. Their allegiance was clear to Jesus, and they're going to be persecuted for it. In fact, I believe it's the year 52 AD, Nero becomes emperor. Paul wrote Ephesians sometime probably in the 50s. Nero is likely emperor when Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians. And essentially from Nero on, it's severe persecution of Christians. But you know what? That opposition, that challenge does not stop or thwart the spread of the gospel. But there are challenges. And today, in our day, there's animosity toward the teachings of the Bible. There's cultural pressure to sin. To sin is the norm in our world, and to be holy is pressured against. There's organized opposition in our country against the Christian faith and historic Christian teaching. And there's going to be social and societal rejection. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. And that's hard. It's hard to be rejected. To be really, we're really looking a lot more different than the world, aren't we? If you hold to biblical Christianity. And we're going to just probably likely continue to look more different if you believe what the Bible says and strive to live it out. It's going to be hard. That's why the book of Ephesians is so encouraging. So I'm so excited. I'm so excited to preach Ephesians because it is such an encouraging book. It's encouraging and it's incredibly clear. And man, it challenges the notions of our age and these false views of Christianity. How many churches and Christians of our days are trying to synchronize or sync up Christian teaching with the practices of the world. The book of Ephesians challenges that powerfully and helps us. That's the impact of God's word on the world. What about us? Because it's going to be through us that the gospel goes out and that the disciples are made. And, and Lord willing, like, like what happened in Ephesus, the culture is changed, even though it's going to create animosity and challenge and, and, and difficulty. It's through us, the people of God, that take the word of God out. We need to be reasoning and dialoguing. Friends, we need to challenge the practices of the world. We have the word of God. We have what God says. Do you believe that? We've got, as Christians, to challenge the synchronism going on in churches. There, these are Christians who will claim to believe in Jesus, and in, in some cases are at least just confused. And you can show them, no, uh, repentance looks like this. No, it's not okay to keep sinning. No, it's not. It's not okay to accept or justify or defend what God prohibits. I don't get to make up what I believe. I, I strive to believe what God says. Friends, we need to challenge that. Ephesians 4.11, take no part, have no fellowship in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Rather, expose them. 
And that leads to salvation, if you read on in Ephesians 4. But it starts with us being changed by the gospel. So that's one thing. Have you divulged your sinful practices? Have you followed the picture of repentance laid out in Scripture? To turn away from that which is sinful, which God labels as wrong and sinful, turn away from that, resist that, reject that, repudiate that, and turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and submit to him as the one who will order my life and tell me how to live and order and shape what I believe about all things. Have you, have you done that? Have you, have you seen this happen in your life? You should confess Jesus as Lord, but then you also turn from sin. One picture of that, 2 Corinthians seven eleven, is I think the, the clearest picture of repentance in the New Testament. Listen to how Paul characterizes this Christian repentance. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Friends, if you're living with or in or accepting of what is clearly sinful practice, it will hurt you, it will harm you, and it is contrary to what God calls you to live out. You should turn from that. Turn from that today in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the clarity and power of your word, for these powerful examples of, of your word going forth and your spirit bringing conviction and salvation to hearers, Lord. And the powerful, bold example of Paul reasoning, persuading, boldly speaking, and even desiring to go into a riot to preach the gospel. That Lord, your word had such a provocative effect on the world, it caused a riot. May it be so in our day. That your word would be so challenging to the, the darkness of this world and to the confusion of so-called Christianity. That we'd be shaped by what you say and only by what you say. We wouldn't be synchronized or synced up with the world or pagan teaching or pagan practices. Whether it be magic or materialism. But Lord, help us to order our steps after your word. Your word would be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. That your word would prevail and increase as we saw in Ephesus. God, we pray that would happen here in our church. That we'd see your word increasing. We'd see people divulging their sinful practices and confessing Jesus as Lord and making whatever sacrifices necessary to live for him as Lord of all. So God, do that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.